This is episode 88 of Monster Kid Radio, and I thought we'd open things up with another song from the Volcanics. This is their album, The Lonely One. You can learn all about the band over at their website at thevolcanics.com. This song is called Green Room, and we're using that to kick off the episode where we're going to talk about the Deadly Mantis a little bit more with Kaiju 101's Andy Campbell. I am your host, writer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to the podcast celebrating the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I hope everybody's doing okay and has been enjoying our conversation with Andy about The Deadly Mantis. I was so excited that he wanted to talk about this particular movie. It gave me a chance to revisit this movie. I haven't watched it in years. I think I mentioned that in the last episode, and I might have mentioned it in what you're about to hear from our recording with Andy. Like I said, Andy is from the podcast Kaiju 101. That's his podcast. You can find it over at kaiju 101 Com. It's all about the science behind the giant Japanese monster movies. Where do the Mothra eggs come from? How does paint thwart a kaiju? I mean, it's a great podcast. I look forward to every new episode. And at the end of our discussion about the Deadly Mantis, I did ask Andy if he can give us a sneak preview of some things that he's got coming up on his own show. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. Now, what else are we talking about during this conversation about the Deadly Mantis? Well, we're going to talk about how realistic some of the science behind the Deadly Mantis is. We're going to talk about how the movie ended. We're going to compare it to things like Mothra and some of the other Japanese kaiju films. It's just a fun discussion. If you haven't heard part one of our discussion, go back to episode 87 to hear us talk about the plot, the setup, the players involved in the film, and then you've got part two right here. Of course, you don't need to listen to part one to get everything you can out of part two. You don't have to listen to them in order, but if you want to go back and listen... Check them out over at our website at monsterkidradio.net, where we've got links to everything else that we do, like our Live 365 channel, our YouTube channel, our Flickr album, links to our Facebook group, where we have been having conversations about the Giant Mantis with Andy. In fact, if you are a Facebook user, I'm going to encourage you to join the group so you can get involved in conversations about, well, anything that you hear on Monster Kid Radio, anything relevant to what we do here at MKR. One thing that just came up since the last episode went out is I mentioned that I'm starting to develop a little teeny tiny bit of a crush on somebody from the Deadly Mantis. I don't think it's going to be a shock to hear that I think Alex Tilton's pretty keen. Don't tell Julie I said that. Well, Andy commented on it, and I'm going to read what Andy said. She's a much stronger woman character than these movies typically get. One scene I don't think we brought up was the dance scene where the corporal asked Dr. Ned if he could dance with Marge, and the doctor informs him that it isn't his choice to make. Pretty progressive compared to other sci-fi monster movies of the era. And he's right. I mean, this movie did some things that you don't see in a lot of... Well, you're just going to have to go back and listen to part one of our conversation in episode 87. And listen to part two in this episode about the Deadly Mantis. Again, all of what Andy and I talked about. About this great giant monster movie that we both really enjoyed. At the end of this episode, we are going to announce the winner of the Alligator People Sculpture Contest. Tom Bigler was on the show back in episode 81 and 82, where we talked about the movie The Alligator People, and he has donated another wonderful piece of original artwork to a lucky listener of Monster Kid Radio. Now, the way people entered the contest was they had to email me their animal of choice. If they were going to turn into an animal themselves, we wanted to hear what that animal would be and why. I've gotten over 20 entries, which is pretty cool, 
and I'm going to reveal the winner of the contest at the end of this episode. Now, I don't have a contest like that going right now, but if you do want to get a hold of us here at Monster Kid Radio, you can shoot us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call our voicemail line. It's 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. Any feedback that you have for the show, we may play on a future episode unless you specifically ask us not to play it on the show. But I'd love to hear what you think about the Deadly Mantis, the Alligator People, anything that we've talked about here on the show, call it in or write it in. Let me know what you think. And maybe if we get enough of it, we'll do another feedback episode down the line. You know, I'm eager to get back to our conversation with Andy about the Deadly Mantis. So why don't we go ahead and dive into that right after this? Hey, listeners, this is Joe Stuber. If you're a fan of Indiana Jones, you might have heard the indie comic book segment I co-host with Keith Voss over on the IndieCast. Well, if you like those segments, you'll want to check out a brand new podcast I'm hosting and producing called Comic Book Central. The mission of Comic Book Central is to showcase and celebrate how our favorite four-color adventures are represented in the media. That's right. When a comic book is brought to life, Comic Book Central is there. You'll hear from some of your favorite actors, directors, producers, and writers. And everyone is at a hand in contributing to the massive explosion of comic book projects we're seeing on Broadway, television, video games, and film today. Hey, how'd you like a preview? Well, here it is. Take a listen. The world of podcasting has become super... It's Comic Book Central, the podcast devoted exclusively to interviews with the creative talents that have brought comics to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. I'm Kenneth Johnson, the creator of the Incredible Hulk television series. Was there ever thought to have the Hulk speak on the show? No, Hulk not speak. Hulk talk is dumb. Hulk smash. Good, good. <laughs> fire bad. Yeah, fire bad. Ah, ah. She is Aaron Gray. Aaron, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Gil was doing great. He was making the big bucks. And then... You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? <laughs> Hi, this is Rebecca Staub, the invisible woman from the original Fantastic Four movie. I was familiar with the Fantastic Four. So, you know, I went and got a couple of the comic books and talked to people in the comic book store. Let me get this right. Going for the role of Sue Storm, you go into a comic book store and start talking to the guys there? Yeah. <laughs> Could you please tell me how that went? He is an actor, former professional boxer, and a Kryptonian monolith. Let's welcome to the show Jack O'Halloran. What's tougher, uh, going toe-to-toe with George Foreman or with a Hollywood executive? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, Hollywood executives aren't that difficult, actually. Do you dress in all black when you go after him? I wear my Krypton suit. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Adrienne Barbeau, Catwoman from Batman the Animated Series, and you're listening to Comic Book Central. Perfect. I have an obsession with the 70s game show Match Game. We have to remember Richard Dawson. Ever hit on you? I don't think so. I did the pilot for the gong show, and <laughs> Chuck Barris, he asked me out a couple of times. <laughs> Well, hi, guys. I'm Ilya Salkin, the originator of Superman the Movie. Interesting casting note. 
when we're talking about Clark and Lois, Lyle Wagner, and Linda Carter. Absolutely. Boy, you did your homework, man. Linda Carton comes to see me. I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel pool. Wonder Woman. My mouth falls on the floor. It's Captain Marvel himself, Jackson Bostwick. Great costume, by the way. Great costume. Oh, fantastic. Do you have it? Yeah, I have one. When was the last time you were in it? Well, actually, I went around the house. The dogs like it. And uh, <laughs> when I barbecued it. Hey, Captain Marvel, yeah, flip me a burger. Shazam! Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum, Lex Luthor from Smallville. Uh, make sure you listen to this guy's show. He sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. You are listening to Comic Book Comic Book Comic Book Central, where comic books come to life. Excelsior! Well, as you can tell, my guests and I have a lot of fun talking about their comic book theme projects. But I can say we also touch on some serious topics as well. It's fascinating to get the stories behind the stories with some of these folks. Uh, these interviews are pretty revealing, to say the least. It's Comic Book Central. Check it out online at comicbookcentral.net, on Facebook at Comic Book Central Network, Twitter at Comic Book CTRL, and make sure you subscribe to it on iTunes. It's Comic Book Central, where comic books come to life. <laughs> Obviously, we can't talk about a giant monster movie without comparing it to something like Godzilla. At least I can't, especially when I got the Kaiju 101 guy on the show. This is not a Kaiju film. It's not a man in a rubber suit, but it's still a giant monster movie. How does it compare, do you think, to something like a Mothra? The American monster movies, you know, there's definitely, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? They have more, they're more serious. They're more, they have more gravitas, I guess. They're not as fun fantasy as like a Mothra is. Or some of the later Godzilla movies, they're definitely not serious. Oh, no, not at all. Deadly Mantis plays it totally straight. There's not much, you know, fun happening in this movie. And I think that's the biggest distinction between, you know, the Japanese and American monster movies is just the tone. But as far as the effects go, I think they're comparable. I like, I mean, I like the design of the, you know, the bug or the, the mantis. It seems pretty spot on for what it is. Yeah. You know, it's not overly exaggerated in terms of proportion or anything. I mean, it's just a giant bug. Mm -hmm. So much so that when they do use a real mantis on a model for the Washington Monument, I wasn't taken out of it. I didn't feel like, well, that's clearly something different. I felt like it worked, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. blended together. I thought, yeah, I agree. I thought that blended really well. And a lot of the these other movies, they do the same thing where they'll superimpose a, a real live insect or spider or whatever. And you can definitely tell that it's two different things. Right. This, I thought it was, it was a lot more seamless than some of the other attempts. Mind you, it is only that one scene. Maybe that's the key to it. If they had done it more than once, we would have started noticing more differences. But it was just mm -hmm. the one time. I mean, even when we see it flying, it's clearly a model. So mm -hmm. I suppose that helps. Yeah, I did, I did like that scene where the, the real insect is climbing up the Washington Monument model. I thought that was pretty neat. Oh, that was great. That was... Pretty terrifying. I mean, I'm trying to imagine these people inside the model, not or inside the model, inside the monument. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as this thing is climbing up, and you're either just looking out the window, seeing its body just going and going and going, it never stops going by the window. Mm -hmm. That to me is pretty terrifying. I would also probably be terrified if I was in any of the cities that the jets were firing rockets over, yeah. trying to take out the deadly mantis. Because <laughs> they clearly miss every almost every time, and they're almost <laughs> always at a downward angle. So those <laughs> rockets are going somewhere. I you know I didn't even think of that when I was watching it last night. I mean, you got to do what you got to do when a deadly mantis shows up, but <laughs> collateral damage. You know. <laughs> oh, 
It's probably Fog of not War that's and all funny. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually the Deadly Mantis does make it to a big city. Make yes. its way to a big city. Uh, we go through Washington. We end up in uh, which tunnel was that? Manhattan Tunnel. I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I mean it's it's New a very Jersey. populated area. It's yeah. not it's not out in the middle of nowhere. It's not some research station. Uh, up north, it is a very populated area. There's TV crews all around. We don't actually see the Deadly Mantis end up being forced into the tunnel. We no, see it get shot down. You see it buzzing sort of the Manhattan skyline, and then it cuts right to the tunnel being tarped up. Right. And I would have liked to have seen more stuff in New York City. You know, the bug finally gets to the big city. I would yeah. have liked to have seen a little bit more action happen there. It felt like a chunk of script got dropped for whatever reason. A, a big mm-hmm. chunk of something. You know, how did the Deadly Mantis get there? Why did it go inside the tunnel? What are they doing with these big tarps? They tell us later. Mm-hmm. But what are they doing with the big tarps? Why? I just would have liked a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I imagine the Deadly Mantis showing up in New York or Manhattan or New Jersey or wherever it is. It would be a problem. <laughs> It'd be some chaos that would have been fun to watch. I mean, we do <laughs> see the Deadly Mantis interact with some models and such. We talked about the bus. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have seen more of that. Yeah, the bus and going back, the the scene in the Arctic in the camp, I really liked the, even though the model was a little bit stiff and slow moving, the look of it sort of approaching the buildings I thought was really well done. You know, that was a great destruction scene. I mean, I'm trying to imagine that blown up to a mm-hmm. bigger scale with the cityscape and more cars and civilians and that sort of thing. Speaking of that, that's a great scene. I mean, that, to me, I think shows the power of the Deadly Mantis more than anything. Mm-hmm. And it happens so early in the film, and we never call back to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely you get the scale of you know the size of this creature. It's it's as big as these you know two three story buildings. That's not something you see when it's just sort of flying in the air. You don't get that sense of scale that you do when he's on the ground in front of buildings. It looks powerful. Oh yeah, and there is <laughs> there is one moment towards the end of the movie that the green screening or whatever it is they did didn't quite age as well as the rest of the film because after they spoiler after they kill the mantis which you know they're going to <laughs> is it dead or is it not and marge starts going up to take a picture mm-hmm. and one of its claws starts to move again and i'm not sure if we saw how the claw got wrapped around her but at one point it is and it starts to pull her in i watched that a couple of times and i couldn't tell if she just sort of fainted or if the claw was grabbing her. It's a little bit awkward. Yeah, definitely. But it is an opportunity for Colonel Parkman to come in and save the girl, and there's your damsel in distress moment. <laughs> Literally, he picks her up and carries her off. Which wasn't necessarily called for, but no. there are a few moments in this movie where it seems like he's really pushing for some romance, and she may not be on the same page as him at first. Yeah, when he, uh, they're driving in the car, and <laughs> yeah, that light is green. <laughs> <laughs> it's starting to get dangerous in here. You better take me home. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. The chemistry wasn't quite there yet. I mean, I, I went along with it towards the end, but at first it seemed a little mm-hmm. a little creepy, a little bit of abuse of power maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> at the end where he rips the camera out of her hand and throws it to Ned. <laughs> <laughs> I picture like, let Ned do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he takes a picture of him, like evidence yes. for later or something, in case he gets a little too, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we kind of skipped, and we're kind of all over the place, and that's okay. That's sometimes how we do it here on Monster Kid Radio. The Deadly Mantis got shot down by the missiles, crawled into the tunnel, and 
I don't know if I necessarily understand why they had to go into the tunnel after the Mantis once they say it's going to die in there. They said it was below the waterline, and then if it punched through the tunnels, there it would flood the, oh, the tunnel. Okay. I think that's why they had to go in after it. That makes sense. Okay, we talked about the big wet tarps. It's because they were filling the thing full of smoke. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure why they had to spray with water. Was it to keep the tarps wet to keep the smoke in, to keep smoke from coming out? Oh, could be, yeah. It was kind of confusing when they were talking about it, though. It didn't really make a heck of a lot of sense. Well, because you see the big tarp and you see these water hoses, and they don't explain what they're doing until a scene or two later. Right. Yeah. Would smoke bother an insect like that? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, because they... they, them, or...? Uh, disorient them, and they wouldn't be able to breathe. Like, insects have little holes all over the exoskeleton for oxygen to diffuse into. So if there was too much smoke, it would eventually just die. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're not going to smoke it out. We're not going to suffocate it. We're going to go in after it. <laughs> With <laughs> grenades. <laughs> Chemical mines. Chemical mines, which were just, uh, looked like kerosene cans. They really it's, did. They said gas on them. <laughs> We went down to the gas station, got a couple of cans. We're going to throw this in after it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're worried about it punching through the walls, but let's set off a bunch of bombs in the tunnel. Well, they did say, they did say, they have a very limited range. Yes. <laughs> Although they appear to blow up right in front of the colonel a few times. Yeah. And he's, un- he's unaffected by them. Well, he's wearing that protective suit. So oh. It's good for smoke and chemical mine explosions. <laughs> yes. I would imagine that a giant bug would have a very hard exoskeleton. I mean, they already do. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have a skeletal system, as Dr. Ned tells us. No animals do. Yeah. No. No, all animals do. <laughs> yeah, all animals do, yes. Uh, but the deadly mantis is on. It's got the exoskeleton that can be ripped apart by an airplane, I suppose, if you pull it, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but it's got this hard exoskeleton. It's deflecting rockets. But they go in with these mines. I mean, how how hard would an exoskeleton like that be that big? It would be fairly hard, I think. Yeah? I actually did. One of my episodes was on, you know, the physics of big bugs, regardless of how bulletproof their armor would be. You know, just a massive exoskeleton that big would be too heavy for an insect. I wanted to bring that up because I do remember that episode where you talked about how, you know, Mothra probably wouldn't be able to fly and these big giant bugs are just so huge. They become so dense and so heavy that in order for them to maneuver like that, it's just not realistic. The problem of scaling, you know, when a surface area, when it increases, it's just going up by a factor of two. Mm. But the volume increases, you know, at a cubic rate. So, you know, the volume of the weight of this animal is increasing way faster than the strength of the muscle could increase. You would get big mammals or big, you know, bony animals because their skeletons are on the inside. But the physics of, you know, an outer skeleton, it just doesn't work. They can go back and listen to episode three, I believe. <laughs> get that plug in. <laughs> hey, no, I, like I said, we're, like we're going to put a link in the show notes to the Kaiju 101 cast. So we need to make sure people go and check that out. Because you know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> I, I've, I've learned a lot listening to Kaiju 101. If a giant monster shows up, I know what to do. If for some reason there was a giant bug... They were able to overcome their massively heavy exoskeleton. You would shoot at the joints because the joints of an insect have to get real thin and real narrow to allow flexibility. So they should just aim all their shots right at the leg joints. And I thought that they were going to go that route with this. Like I said, it's been a long time since I watched it before watching it for the show. Dr. Ned does talk about the folds and the muscle. Mm -hmm. At one point, I thought, well, there's your key right there. Just aim for the leg joints, you know? Yeah, yeah, they never went back to that. 
Uh, maybe if they had let Ned in the tunnel, you would have. Ah, see, if they let Ned play more hero than, mm-hmm. you know. He's a rock star scientist. You That's know, true. <laughs> he should have been in on that. On top of that, they also don't ever go after the wings, which I would think would be the most delicate part of the bug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could you know take the wings out and just fight it on the ground. They wouldn't have to fire rockets into <laughs> cities. <laughs> <laughs> We're just gonna fire a bunch of rock, and it wasn't just one or two, ladies and gentlemen. It's they are unloading everything they have, and they keep missing until the very end when the colonel takes it down. But he only he didn't hit it with a missile; he collided with it. Yeah, he shot all his missiles and went kamikaze on the on the mantis. <laughs> he ejected just in time. Just yeah. Oh man, this movie's a lot of fun. I was doing some research online and and trying to find some information and what other people think about the film and. There seem to be two camps, that the Deadly Mantis is great or the Deadly Mantis is just... Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm finding myself leaning more toward the great side of things. It's a giant bug movie. You can't go wrong. It's universal. It's got the wonderful universal music. I mean, all the universal monster movies of the 50s have this wonderful score. And I really like the performances. I like the characters in it enough. I'm finding myself more toward the love it side, and I'm assuming that's kind of where you fall. Oh, yeah. I love this movie. I first saw it, you know, it probably wasn't more than 10 years ago that I first saw it in my 20s, but I knew of it just because of the uh, the Crestwood monster books had one uh, on it. Oh, yeah. And the look of the monster, I was really drawn to it. I loved it. So, yeah, no, I'm in the Love It camp. Firmly in the Love oh, It yeah. camp. <laughs> was there an actual Crestwood book devoted just to this one? Just to this film? I believe there was. Okay. Yeah. I think I've talked about the Crestwood House books on the show before. Andy and I have talked about them because we we were at a party held by Kyle from the Kaiju cast, and we talked a little bit about it. And these Crestwood books were the ones that introduced me to these monster movies to begin with. I loved them. And over the years, I've been trying to kind of recollect them and add them to my bookshelf. I have not been very successful because they're rare or out of print. or Well, they're all out of print, but they're very expensive, especially the Godzilla one. Yeah, some of them go for hundreds of dollars. I know, it's insane. (laughs) But I don't remember the Deadly Mantis having a book to itself. Oh, hey, quick Google image search does show one. There it is right there. Aha. These Crestwood books are amazing. It was my introduction to every single monster movie. Oh, yeah. I came after sort of the Saturday morning movie marathons Mm -hmm. and before, you know, DVDs and online streaming were readily available. So I never saw a lot of these movies and those books were really my only introduction to them. Yeah. And they're wonderful books, the, the photos, the artwork. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they got the information wrong. Yes. You know, the alternate ending for King Kong versus Godzilla comes to mind, <laughs> but I don't remember any of that. Just the pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Such good. I mean, these are wonderful books. And if this was how you first learned about the Deadly Mantis, then I mean, even better. Mm hmm. Now I want to get that one and put it on my shelf. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how much that one's going for. I'll have to do some checking off mic. (laughs) For me, The Deadly Mantis was something that I came across mid-90s or so. I really started getting into a lot of these movies, trying to add them to my my movie collection, my VHS collection. When I was working at a blockbuster video, there was a guy that came in one day, uh, a radio DJ. We were doing some sort of event, and I couldn't tell you anything about the event. I don't even remember the guy's name, but he was into these classic monster movies as well. And as soon as he found out that I liked what I knew about them, 
he started just feeding me movies and information, and I believe The Deadly Mantis was one of them. He's also the guy that got me hooked on Hammer Films. So, I mean, this guy did a wonderful thing for me. <laughs> I wish I could remember his name and could track him down and just give him a big thank you all these years later. But, yeah, I remember seeing The Deadly Mantis and Tarantula and all these right around the same time. And I don't know if I've really watched it much since. It's not one that I remember going back to over and over again because I ended up liking Creature Tarantula better. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I watched it again for this, and I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, you mentioned it at that party, and I've been thinking we need to have you on the show to talk about it. It's me an excuse to watch it. Yep. And I found myself really enjoying it. Yeah, no, it's it's a terrific movie. I love it. And I love the uh, the design of the, of the mantis. I, I think it's really true to sort of what a mantis looks like in real life. And if you look at, you know, I was watching YouTube videos of mantises hunting and feeding. They're terrifying creatures. You know, they're really, like, deadly. Yeah. Which I guess is where they got the name of the movie, The Deadly Mantis. <laughs> <laughs> I think Dr. Ned calls them voracious. Voracious, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In all the kingdom of creation, there is no predator more deadly. <laughs> I think was the quote. Something really dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> the monster looks good, and it looks just alien enough because of how mm-hmm. it moves. And I mean, mantis and, and a lot of insects have that kind of creepy crawly thing going for them anyway. Mm-hmm. To imagine one of these things blown up to whatever, however big they are. Yeah. Alien enough to just be terrifying. Yeah. And the head of the mantis is sort of alien in and of itself. You know, it's sort of that almond shape with the big eyes, the little green men kind of look to it anyways. <laughs> Well, and it roars. I mean, and it roars. Scary. Yeah, <laughs> uh, scaring bugs. You're scary yeah. bugs, yelling bugs. Man, I'd be terrified. <laughs> it sounded kind of like a lion. I don't know what it was. I yeah, I I don't know. I was trying to pinpoint. I'm sure somebody's done the research. Somebody has it online somewhere. You know what bug or what animal was used to make that bug screaming sound? <laughs> Something else that I liked about the Deadly Mantis. It doesn't get a lot of sympathy from me. Sometimes in some of these movies, I'm a softie. I start to feel bad for the animal because it's just doing what animals do. It's not like it can help itself or whatever. Mm -hmm. This time around, I had no problem when they went and tried to blow it up. No. (laughs) And it's it's clearly a good guy versus bad bug movie. I I had no problem with that. Maybe that's just because it's a bug. It didn't have anything that I can connect to. Not that I can connect to like a Godzilla or a giant tarantula, (laughs) but, you know, it didn't. It wasn't a sympathetic monster to me. It was a it giant was, bug. We got to stop it. I sort of got the same vibe because I do like that theme in monster movies. You know, sort of the the misunderstood monster where we feel sympathy for them at the end. You don't get that this with this movie. It's portrayed as sort of just a vicious predator throughout the whole movie. We don't get the idea that this is you know just an animal sort of going about its business. This is deadly killer that needs to be stopped. In all the kingdom of the living, there is no more deadly or voracious creature than the praying mantis. Is that, in it. Yes, that's is the that... exact quote. Yeah, I went and found it. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure that helps. I mean, that it is a mantis versus, I don't know, giant bunnies or something. I don't know. <laughs> there is a movie with giant bunnies, though. I know. Night of the that. Lepus. Night yeah. of the Lepus, yeah. Yeah. Which I, I haven't have... watched that in further. I don't... Yeah, neither have I. <laughs> For a good reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned the music. I love these giant, bombastic musical scores. I just love how brazen and in-your-face they are. Mm-hmm. I think William Lava did some of the music in this one, who I love from other movies like God Help Me, Dracula vs. Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, 
Was this like an original score, or are they borrowing from any other movies? Well, Universal fell in love with the Stinger from Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. So I was listening for that in this one. Yeah. Because Universal would play that. They played it in, well, they played it in their release of King Kong vs. Godzilla. Yes, yeah. You know, over so, and over. <laughs> yeah. So Universal loved that bit of music. They had an extensive musical library that they would pull from and use in a lot of their films. I think some of this probably was library music, but it was a universal library music, so it still had that mm-hmm. universal monster movie feel. It fits, definitely. Yeah, yeah. but I, I do think there were some original pieces or in the score because I think it's turned up, pieces of the music have turned up on some CD releases, some soundtrack releases down the line. And I do know that some of the music actually turned up in the Joe Dante film, Matinee. Okay. Which I adore. Are you familiar with Matinee? I have. I haven't seen it in in a long time, maybe since it came out. The movie within the movie, the movie Mant. Yeah. Or uses a lot of music from, like, say, the Mole People. And there's a track from the Deadly Mantis in there. And in fact, one of the movie posters for the movie Mant in the movie Matinee, the M from Mant is the same M from some poster releases for the Deadly Mantis. Oh, really? So there's a nice little connection there. So the M with the, the curly... Arms coming off the side. Okay. Yeah. Well, Joe Dante loves these movies, so. I'll have to go back and rewatch that. There's a great Blu-ray release from France. From France? <laughs> yeah, it's the only place that's been released on Blu-ray is in France, so I had to get a region-free Blu-ray player just to watch that. Okay. Okay, it wasn't the only reason I got the Blu-ray <laughs> but it's one of the reasons I got a region-free Blu-ray player. One of these days I'll talk about matinee on the show. But right now we're talking about the Mantis. What else is there to say about the Mantis, the Deadly Mantis? So we're sort of at the end of the movie. They've gone into the tunnel. The effect or the sort of the creature design of the, I guess, the upper half of the Mantis coming out of the tunnel with all the little model cars, I thought that was really well done. I, I love the look. That. that scene was, it looked spectacular. The head and the, so the arms thrashing about. It looked great. I, and the, fall, the smoke that they put in there? Yeah. By putting the smoke in there, it made it just made it even more creepy. Mm-hmm. I loved that. I thought that was great. Yeah, that was a good good climax to the movie. It looked amazing. I know they were model cars and, and all that, but it felt real enough to me. I think the model work in this was fantastic. The miniatures looked really well. I'm just looking at pictures of them right now. Like, I mean, they're obviously model cars, but I think they're really well done. Mm-hmm. The damage looked realistic for the kind of damage a mantis i suppose could inflict on a giant on a car <laughs> and while the explosion's probably not the most intelligent decision when you're worried about the water line breaking or whatever <laughs> you gotta do something to take out the mantis i suppose and and like i said i didn't feel bad when they finally do kill the mantis so i do like that scene it's a good scene mm-hmm. there's some odd lead up to it but it's a good scene I was trying to find out, you know, some of the stuff about the special effects in the movie. I didn't find much, but I found a sort the presser that Universal released when the movie came out. They claimed that they had a 200 foot long paper mache mantis operated by hydraulics. Really? That's what they claim. Apparently, that was just publicity nonsense. <laughs> but I thought that was. I was trying to think about, you know, where in the movie do you see a 200 foot long model? Did they maybe use it for publicity? Maybe. But I was reading you know, some interviews that people associated with movies basically said that was just made up by the publicity department. Yeah. But how cool would that be? Oh, man, that'd be great. <laughs> You'd never see something like that today, so I would have loved to have seen that. Mm-hmm. That would have been amazing. That said, the model that they did end up using 
looks great. Oh, yeah. How does a movie like this compare to something like Mothra for you? Just as well, like, honestly. Like, I can sit down and enjoy Deadly Mantis as much as I enjoy Mothra. You know, my, my heart is sort of always with the Japanese movies, but I love these ones, too. I think this one holds up just as well as Mothra does. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. What, what is it about the giant monster movie thing that kind of gets you? Like, what is it about, like, the giant monsters themselves? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you obviously have an affinity for, like, the Godzilla and the Kaiju, and you know, we're talking about the Deadly Mantis. So what is it about these movies that draws you in? I think when we, we were talking at that party, I think I sort of explained it as, you know, you watch, you know, the news and you see aftermath of natural disasters. And, you know, as terrible as those things are, there's always sort of part of me that was, like, kind of impressed by, you know, nature and the destruction that nature can cause. And seeing, you know, monsters, I guess it sort of personifies that kind of natural disaster. And I think that's what draws me to giant monsters and then giant bugs. Mm. I'm so interested in the sort of evolutionary design and the natural history of insects themselves. So seeing giant bugs on screen destroying cities, there's something that really resonates with me about that. And because of your science background, did your science interests come from these types of movies, this kind of thing? Or was it just totally different and you found a way to blend them together with what you do now? It definitely helped inform. Like, I didn't see a lot of, like, Godzilla movies until I was sort of in my teens and already was sort of on that track. But in my, you know, sort of late teens, early 20s, it definitely did. It sort of guided my my scientific interests, for sure. Like, movies like Jurassic Park. <laughs> but yeah, no, they definitely, they, it goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Definitely. When you were at university, did you hide your love for these movies from your fellow students, or did they all know he's a monster movie guy? Oh, they all knew. I had, <laughs> I had King Kong shirts and Godzilla shirts, and right on. I, in high school, I was very, I, I hid it a little bit more. You know, I was very worried about <laughs> uh-huh. what other people thought of me. But once you get into university, I really, I didn't care. And it was more fun when you're sort of open about your love of monsters or whatever. Just express it, you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's true. Wear it loud and proud, my friend. Exactly. <laughs> you should see my desk at work. It's covered with creature stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I'm right there, brother. Right on. Well, The Deadly Mantis, I think, is a fun film. I think people should check it out. I think if you like things like Mothra, you're going to find some things to like about The Deadly Mantis, although it is a completely different flavor because of the difference between the American storytelling with these kinds of movies versus the Japanese storytelling with those types of movies. I think it's still a good fit. I wouldn't call it a kaiju film. It's not a man in a suit. But it's definitely a great time with a giant bug. I mean, you can't go wrong with a giant screaming bug. Never. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're trying to figure out how it works, and then you know it's just not possible. You can put your brain on hold and just enjoy the ride. (laughs) There you go. Where do people find you? We've talked a little bit about the Kaiju 101 cast. It's kaiju101.com. Yeah, that's right. They can find me there. And I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash kaiju101. Can you give us a little sneak peek of what might be coming next on your podcast? Well, I am uh, was a little inspired by this movie. You first see the mantis frozen in ice. And so I'm going to be talking a little bit about sort of animals that undergo that suspended animation and how that works. A Godzilla movie, King Kong, or not King Kong, King Ghidorah versus Godzilla. It features time travel. So I'll be talking a little bit about time travel. Ooh. Yeah. The physics of, you know, forward and backward time travel. And I'm going to be sort of branching out, you know, not just science. I want to talk about, like, a little bit of the history, some of the stories behind these movies. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, one story that I love is the story of uh, Kim Jong-il and his kaiju movie. 
which I don't know if you've heard that story, but it's a very fascinating story. I'm intrigued. Yes, he kidnaps a South Korean director and forces him to make movies for him. Giant monster movies? Uh, all kinds of movies. Wow. Yeah. So I'll be talking a little bit about that. So I'll be listening. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a link in the show notes again over at monsterkidradio.net. But if you have to head over there right now, it's kaiju101.com. Monster Kid Radio listeners, head over there. Tell them that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Andy, I want to thank you for being on the show. This has been something that I've wanted to do for a while. I've had some things come up that kind of made it impossible for mm-hmm. me to really schedule some things. And, you know, you were the first person that jumped <laughs> when I said I need to get somebody on the show. <laughs> so thank you. I really appreciate it. And we got to have you back on again down the line. I would love to be back on. In case we didn't say it enough, kaiju101.com. That's K-A-I-J-U-101.com. Or follow the links in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. There is a Facebook page. He's even got a Twitter account. So if you want to get a hold of Andy, you want to listen to his podcast, check him out. Let him know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. And again, Andy, big thanks for being on the show. And we're going to have you back to talk about maybe another giant bug monster movie down the line. All right. I know that we have a number of people waiting to hear if they won the Alligator People Sculpt provided by frequent Monster Kid Radio guest, supporter, sculptor, Tom Bigler. I Like I said, I have over 20 entries. So what I've done is I've taken all these entries, I've written them down, I've randomized them up, put them in what I call the Magic Lovecraft hat, and I've drawn a winner. And again, the way to enter the contest is people had to let us know what animal they would want to morph into. We got entries like... Wolves, dogs, cats. We got a Wolverine because somebody really likes Hugh Jackman. We got a nice variety of entries here, and I'm eager to see who's going to win. The winner is... Ken B. Ken is the winner, and in his email, he said he'd want to be a shark because they supposedly don't have to sleep, and that way he could watch B-movies and listen to cool podcasts 24 hours a day. How many times have I started watching something, the eyes close, and I'm transported through time to the end credits as a shark? No more. You know what? I'm on board with that. Turn me into a B-movie-watching shark man. And, you know, actually, somebody get a hold of the Sci-Fi Channel. That sounds like a good idea for one of their Saturday night movies. Ken, I will be getting the sculpture into the mail to you within the next week or so. I'm not going to be able to go to the post office this weekend because I'm going to be spending my time at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. Head over to hplfilmfestival.com to learn all about this Lovecraft Film Festival tradition here in Portland, Oregon. It's been going since the late 90s. I've been going to the festival since the early 2000s. And this year, I am a special guest and I am introducing the movie Curse of the Crimson Altar, starring Barbara Steele, Boris Karloff, and Christopher Lee. The movie's going to be shown twice over that three-day weekend, and I'm going to introduce the film at least once, probably twice, and it's going to be a blast. Ray Jelinek, who's been on the show in the past, is going to be there. Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland, he's going to be there. So I'll probably run into them and record with them a little bit from the festival. If I see you, or if you see me more appropriately, come up to me and say hi. Tell me that you're a listener of Monster Kid Radio. We'll chat it up. We'll rap about some of our favorite monster movies. We'll talk about Lovecraft films. Maybe I'll even put you on the show. I'm going to have my recorder on hand. If you're looking for me, and it might be difficult because there's a lot of people at this Lovecraft Film Festival. Typically, the place sells out. Just look for the tall guy wearing the Hawaiian shirt who looks like he's having the most fun in the room. That'll be me. Or come to one of the screenings of Curse of the Crimson Altar. Or come to the panel that I'm going to be on Sunday, 
The panel will be called Monsters Seen and Unseen Exploration into the Nature of Monstrosity. Do we prefer our monsters to be completely alien or make us discover something about ourselves? Panelists include Oren Gray, Doug Bradley, Alan Kozowski, D.H. Covey, myself, and Brandon Seifert. That's going to be a blast. And, I mean, I'm going to be on a panel with Pinhead for crying out loud. So that's going to be something to watch or at least listen to. And if they're all cool with it, I'll record this panel and put it on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. I know Lovecraft doesn't necessarily fit into the traditional classic movie monster mold, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be something for monster kids at the Lovecraft Film Festival I already mentioned the movie I'm introducing. There's also going to be the film Equinox from 1970. And I'm excited about this, something called Drive-In Lovecraft, an audiovisual presentation. Some of the most fascinating pieces of HPL memorabilia are posters related to movies based on Lovecraft's fiction and themes. Alan Trump, a lifelong Cthulhu fan, shares bizarre mythos art from his collection of film art from the 1950s to the 1980s. Unusual features such as Hunchback of the Morgue and The Legendary Curse of Lamora are covered as well as film inspired by HPL's tropes, literary mentors, and Weird Tales colleagues. I've been in contact with Alan. I am looking forward to running into him and chatting with him. Might even get a chance to record with him. And he's going to be showing trailers from things like Kaltiki, The Immortal Monster, The Haunted Palace, and The Dunwich Horror, which are all movies that I dig. I actually have a very soft spot in my heart for The Dunwich Horror. I love the music from that film. Les Baxter can do no wrong. That's what I'm doing this upcoming weekend. I hope you guys and gals are having a great monster-filled weekend yourself, whether you're going to be at the Lovecraft Film Festival or not. I think it's safe to say that you're probably going to hear recordings from the festival over the next few weeks. I'll try to space it out a little bit and try not to get too Cthulhu-heavy, because that way lies madness. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. That, of course, does not apply to the song Green Room. That belongs to the Volcanics. It can be found on their album, The Lonely One, and you can find the band at their website, thevolcanics.com. The song appears in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody next week. Mm-hmm.